welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We stream those programs live at richarddugan.com, and the podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM, Blueberry, as well as richarddugan.com, both the homepage as well as the radio shows page. We encourage you to listen to the podcast because you'll get more information there than just uh, what's contained in the 50 minutes that's available for radio broadcasts. We also uh, encourage you, if you'd like to support what we're doing, you like what we're doing, you like the guests we're bringing to you and the information uh, we would gratefully accept any support you can send us uh, via PayPal or uh, Patreon we have accounts in both locations and um, hey we're here and we're excited about our program today uh, because it's a subject that I've been touching upon over the years and uh, this sort of sort of brings it to light a little bit Now, it's not about recognizing what tune that is, but the fact that it would be in the category of classical music. Now, that's just a little 10-second snippet of production music that I happen to have in the classical music category. Well, we're going to talk with a guest who's been with us before, uh, Robert Freeman, and uh, he is going to share with us his thoughts and ideas as not only contained in his book, The Crisis of Classical Music in America, Lessons from a Life in the uh, education of musicians. Uh, we encourage you to stay with us because uh, I think uh, he's going to enlighten us considerably. Robert, welcome back to our program. Richard, I'm delighted to be there, but I hope uh, you'll call me Bob. All right, Bob, I will do that. And I love the fact that uh, it, it works both ways, backwards and forwards. So uh, that's okay. exciting to me. <laughs> now, the crisis of classical music. Now, I never even considered there to be a crisis in classical music. There is, there is so much of it. I belonged to a uh, classical CD club, and I still have all of those CDs. And every once in a while, I'll throw one in. I just, it doesn't really make any difference which one I throw in there. Sometimes, uh, I do like the softer uh, sounds. I like the cello. I like the flute and the oboe, and and even a little harp thrown in, and so on and so forth. And it's just so soothing. Uh, then when I started doing these programs, uh, I tapped into uh, what I heard of as the Mozart effect. And I looked into that, uh, that it's supposed to have some, uh, I don't want to say miraculous powers, but it's supposed to have some effect on uh, brain pathways and synapses and so forth. Then I read another article poo-pooing the whole thing. <laughs> so uh, and at the same time, I know the personal effects of classical music on my my demeanor and so forth. Uh, so I guess the first thing we should touch upon is what crisis are we talking about in in classical music? Well, first of all, uh, classical music is a term I just as soon get rid of. Okay. Um, um, my book has that title uh, because the publisher said, hey, that's a good title. It'll sell books, and it did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, where shall we begin? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself, because that's an interesting story sure. and it informs what follows. Uh, my paternal grandfather uh, was the son of a British Midlands tavern owner. Um, uh, tavern owners in those days in that part of the world were all brass players. <laughs> and my grandfather was a trumpet player as a kid. The 
tavern went bankrupt, and the family had the choice uh, of either going to debtor's prison, as in Dickens, or taking a sailing ship to Australia. Not surprisingly, they, they took the latter uh, on a sailing ship. They got becalmed in the Bay of Biscay for a month, ran out of food and water. Uh, three of the five children died and were buried at sea, but my grandfather, one older sister, and the parents made it to Sydney, Australia, where by the time he was 14, he had become the champion tournament player of Australia. He came back to London because he couldn't make much of a career as a musician in Australia in those days, uh, and joined the Grenadier Guards Band without, however, reading the fine print and the contract. Um, he thought all he was doing was playing marches in front of Buckingham Palace while they changed the guard. But one day the sergeant-at-arms came and said, you're part of the British Army, here's your rifle, there's a war in South Africa, and we're shipping out Tuesday. It cost my grandfather money that he didn't have to buy his way out of the British Army. Uh, later he joined Sousa's band and did the round-the-world tour with Sousa in 1910 and 11. At that time he had married and had two children. My grandmother did not like the idea of staying at home by herself, uh, for two years while he was on the road with Sousa's band. So she said, let's uh, emigrate to America in 1912 and sent him over to purchase steerage tickets on the Titanic. Uh, we would not uh, be having this conversation uh, if not for the fact that the Titanic was sold out. Uh, mm. he, he helped found uh, the Musicians Union in New York City, uh, 802, which is why it has such a high number, um, and for that was blackballed by the theater owners, and so was delighted when George Eastman was founding a new school of music uh, and a new theater in Rochester, New York, and spending a lot of money on it, um, and he sent a scout to New York to pick out some good musicians and picked out my grandfather to be the first trumpet and the first trumpet teacher at the Eastman School, and it opened in 1921. My mother and father met as students at the Eastman School. They were both string players. My dad was the first ever double bass graduate of the school. Uh, joined the Boston Symphony in the 1940s, was ultimately principal bass. Uh, and um, my parents and my grandfather told me when I was a little kid that the trouble with the music business is that there are too many musicians for the number of opportunities that are available. Um, it's a very seductive thing for kids, but it's a hard way to make a living. Yeah. Um, so my mother and father saw to it that I got a good liberal edu arts education in addition to uh, to a good musical education. I went to Harvard and got a summa and then got a Ph.D. at Princeton. In the meantime, I was an oboe player and a, and a pianist and a conductor. And then one day I read in the newspaper that the directorship of the Eastman School was open, and I suddenly conceived the idea that my real métier at the age of 37 was to be a music school director. I applied uh, for the job, got it, and spent then 24 years reforming the Eastman School so that it's now uh, perhaps the leading music school in the country. Um, I was at Eastman for 24 years and then very briefly president of the New England Conservatory, where I was trying to reform what was going on there, but unsuccessfully. I can tell you more about that. Uh, but in 2000, I thought I'd retired at age 65, and 
I was invited to come down to UT at Austin and become the Dean of Fine Arts at the University of Texas, uh, where they paid me a ton of dough in a place where it knows, never snows, uh, and there's no state income tax. <laughs> <laughs> nice advantages. So I, had a wonderful, I had a wonderful time in Texas. I deaned until I was 71, and then I taught until I was 80, and now I'm 84. Well, so that's my that's my background. Um, now, on the subject of what is classical music, or what why have people called classical music classical? Uh, until the time uh, after, somewhat after J. S. Bach, maybe uh, towards the end of the eighteenth and beginning of the nineteenth centuries, the music that was played was music that had just been written, which is just the way so-called popular music is these days. Uh, it's true, we listen to recordings by Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby. It's time for White Christmas, which has become a classic uh, piece that is done at Christmas time. But once Beethoven came on the scene early in the 19th century, he saw himself as somebody whose music should last for a long time and looked after having his music appear in a complete edition. Uh, the first composer who ever had his works appear in a, a complete edition was J.S. Bach, who had been dead a hundred years before they started trying to figure out what he had written. <laughs> so complete works of Bach were, were written down, uh, were published between 1850 and 1950, uh, 1900, during the half-century second half of the 19th century. Uh, and that's really what gave rise to the idea that some music by people like Haydn and Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and Brahms was worth so much that it ought to be considered classical and repeated often and often and over and over again. Uh, and if you look at the repertories of symphony orchestras, uh, even now, um, Certainly, half of the repertory of the Los Angeles Philharmonic or the San Francisco Symphony, which are both great organizations, will comprise those classics, which you and I have heard many times, but a lot of members of the audience in uh, Los Angeles haven't heard enough yet. Mm -hmm. um, and that puts forward a really important problem, because uh, a repertory kind of ossifies uh, if it becomes only something that was written 100 or 200 years ago, and that you're just playing again and again. And I'm not knocking Beethoven symphonies. I'm just saying that music has to keep growing. Uh, it did until after the First World War, when, of course, uh, not much money was available because of the economic conditions. And then along came a guy named Arnold Schoenberg, uh, an Austrian composer um, who was a great admirer of Gustav Mahler, who was another Austrian composer and conductor. Um, but Schoenberg was trying to write yet more expressive music than uh, Mahler and than uh, Wagner. Uh, and to do so, he ended up writing what musicians call 12-tone or serial music. That's to say they moved away uh, from the idea uh, that a piece of music would be in a key. Uh, you, you may not know lots of pieces, tonal music to sing uh, from memory, but if I sing 
of the beginning of Happy Birthday, you'll get the idea of what a tonal piece is. Mm-hmm. Happy Birthday begins da 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 And I stop just before the last note because your ear is demanding bum, which ends the piece. That's what a tonal piece it is. Three Blind Mice does that. Uh, White Christmas does that. All of the Beethoven symphonies do it. Though it might take them 45 minutes each to do it, but they do it. <laughs> they do. They're all tonal pieces. Schoenberg, uh, who was driven uh, from Europe by the Nazis, uh, spent a year in Boston and then moved to Los Angeles and became uh, a dramatic and somewhat misguided, in my, from my point of view, force in musical composition so that an awful lot of uh, composers during the 1950s and 60s began to write pieces that nobody wants to listen to. One of my teachers at Princeton, a man named Milton Babbitt, uh, once published an article uh, which was entitled, Who Cares If You Listen? Uh, Now, that wasn't his title for the article, uh, and the point of it was that he had as much right to write the kind of music that he wanted just as uh, if you were a professor of physics, uh, you had the right to investigate all kinds of things which the man in the street maybe didn't understand. Uh, but that took music in a kind of very tough direction, uh, which it didn't recover from until about 1970. Not everybody understands that it's been recovered now for half a century and that composers are writing wonderful new pieces Uh that uh, are healthy for music and good for the audience to get to know. That's one of the kinds of crises that I would mark about classical music, and that is that we got to the point where there were two kinds of music, old, old music and new pieces that nobody wanted to hear. And it took us 30 years to get past that point. Well, now, if... Past it now. Right. Now, if you feel that classical music as we talk about it today shouldn't be called classical music is there another word or phrase to describe it that appeals to you good question uh people have been asking that question for some time now i'm uh honored to be writing a book these days with a famous american conductor leonard slatkin uh was the music director in st louis washington dc and detroit as well as a couple of major European orchestras, now 75 years old, uh, I think the most important American conductor since Leonard Bernstein. He's fond of quoting uh, Duke Ellington, who said, uh, there's good music, and then there's the other stuff. (laughs) Now, the advantage of thinking of it that way is that you and I may not agree on what the good stuff is uh, and what the bad stuff is, but we don't have to get into an argument. It kind of implies that we may have different tastes, but I'm not going to be critical of your tastes just because they might be different. Well, I know that when I was a kid, I would hear those those phrases, uh, and it was more satirical than anything else, but it was still uh, based upon certain uh, truths or, or at least true experiences or happenings, and that was the old guys back in the corner going, oh, his young people's this crazy music is of the devil in this and that. And I swore that I would never, ever take that position about any piece of music. I may not like it. It may not be my forte, as you describe, as you say, 
but this is that what they're this is the music they're using to express themselves just as the music of my day is the same thing it's the music let that me, the, the people let me of my give day give you a list of american composers uh, just the beginning of a list of really good american composers who are writing what shall i call it uh, some of the good stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, these days uh, for ever broadening audiences william balcom O-L-C-O-M, Joseph Schwantner, Christopher Rouse, uh, John Corigliano, uh, Jeff Beal, um, Evan Putz, um, Michael Torkey. Um, I didn't know I have a list in front of me, but I could easily <laughs> go on for a long time. Sure. Um, because there are a lot of them. Um, and they're writing very attractive music. Some of it is easier to listen to. John Adams, for example, and Philip Glass have both written very popular operas. Adams uh, has written an, op- an opera uh, called um, Nixon in China, uh, which is very popular. Um, my friend Kevin Putz has just gotten a Pulitzer Prize with an opera called Silent Night, which is about Christmas Eve in 1914, when the Scotch, the French, and the Germans put down their arms for an evening and drank and sang together uh, before on Christmas Day, picking up the guns and killing each other again. Yeah, it was an unfortunate end to that wonderful uh, moment. Uh, There was even, allegedly, there was even a soccer game that was played, uh, and uh, they never say who, apparently they don't know who won it. Uh, Someone might, but, you know, not that it matters, uh, before, as you say, they went uh, went back to war. We are talking with Bob Freeman. He is uh, talking with us about the crisis of classical music in America, lessons from a life in the education of musicians. And we are talking with him about uh, the the wide world of uh, music. Uh, I I hesitate to use the word classical, but let's just say that um, you're going to be very interested in staying with us. As we continue talking with uh, Bob uh, Freeman and uh, talking about this crisis of classical music in America, uh, one of the things, uh, Bob, that I find fascinating when I hear in the educational world, educational system, uh, that uh, we don't have the money for this class, that class, and the other class, and usually it is the the electives. Usually it is what would be considered, I guess, what, liberal arts, what have you, music, and and uh, uh, maybe certain labs and sports and and so forth. And and with what I know of these particular areas, I, w- I took uh, I was in band. I was in madrigals in high school, um, you know, and certainly in certain clubs and, and, and organizations uh, in, in a school that that taught me these different things. And one of the things that I've learned is that if you got rid of math and science and reading, and all you had left were those quote unquote elective classes, you would still learn how to read and write and do math and uh, uh, learn proper English, let alone other forms, uh, other uh, genres, if you will, of, of English, uh, maybe even foreign languages, because specifically in music, 
you use all of those elements, right? That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the tragedies, and certainly one of the problems for American orchestras these days, is that uh, while public school music teaching in the 40s and 50s was doing very well in the United States, for fiscal reasons it got eliminated almost all over the country uh, during the 60s and 70s, so that there are very few uh, public schools in the United States that now have good music programs. Um, it's a shame that that's the case, because uh, while it's very difficult to get a job in music, I mean, we're graduating these days more than 35,000 young people with music degrees, uh, you're perfectly right that studying music for children or adolescents uh, provides them with all kinds of uh, very valuable skills that they can use in other aspects of life. Let me tell you a couple of stories. First of all, I'd like to refer your listeners to a terrific book by a man named James Catterall, C-A-T-T-E-R-A-L-L, who was for many years a professor at UCLA, recently deceased. The book I'd like your readers, uh, your listeners, to have a look at is called Doing Well by Doing Good by Doing Art. In that book, Professor Catterall uh, studies 20,000 kids in the Los Angeles public school system uh, over a decade. And he comes to the conclusion that uh, irrespective of the kids' socioeconomic background, studying the arts as part of his middle or senior high school work um, made it possible for the kid markedly to do better uh, in his other academic work, to graduate from high school in larger numbers, to get into good colleges in larger numbers, to graduate from college, and to get good jobs and have fulfilling lives in much larger numbers, not by 2 or 3%, but by 30 or 40%, which is really striking. Uh, now let me tell you another true story, which comes from my experience uh, as a board member of something in Houston called uh, the National Center uh, for Human Performance. Um, It's part of the Texas Medical Center, which is the biggest medical center in the world, and naturally we Texans think it's the best in the world. It may well be. (laughs) Um, This National Center for Human Performance is at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Uh, And as a board member, I heard uh, a lieutenant colonel from the Air Force uh, come to address the board about his experience as the head of the drone program, which our country uses in the Middle East. Now, the good thing about the drone program is that when the drones crash, they don't hurt our people because nobody's on board. But they crash all of the time, and they cause collateral damage, uh, which means they... Uh, they kill people we don't want to see killed. They kill our allies and make enemies. Um, and it costs you and me $10 million every time one of these things crashes. Mm. So the, uh, there are two guys operating uh, the drone program on an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf. Let's say you and me, you're in charge of synthesizing 25 incoming uh, video signals from the drone, and I'm in charge of synthesizing... 25 incoming audio signals from the drone, and then we have to talk to each other and synthesize what we're learning and time to keep the 
grown from crashing, and we can't do it. The drone just crashed. So the Pentagon spent a lot of money trying to figure out which kinds of Americans are best at synthesizing multiple incoming uh, data uh, in a computer-driven age. And after they spent a lot of your money and mine, they came to the conclusion that the people who are best at doing that are pianists. Hmm, really? Now, that's an interesting thing that, to think about. Uh-huh. Uh, because when you're playing the piano, and I'm a pianist, uh, or I have been, um, when you start a piece of music, you're not just playing one line, as is the case if you're playing a clarinet or a flute. Uh, you're playing all kinds of different lines at the same time. Furthermore, let's say we're going to play a three-minute piece. Uh, naturally, I'm going to start in the first measure of that piece, but in order uh, to make the piece convincing, i got to be thinking while I'm playing the first measure also what's going to happen in the second, third, fourth, fifth measures. And now that we're in the second measure, I've got to forget whatever, I'm, uh, whatever mistake I made in the first uh, measure have to start planning on the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th measures, uh, which is to say your brain is doing handsprings in order to, uh, uh, to be able to perform decently. Uh, that's very much unlike, uh, let's say, hitting uh, a fastball uh, from Mr. Cole uh, and in the World Series. You go up to the plate and you try to figure out whether he's going to... Uh, throw a fastball or a curve, and you're either right or wrong. If you're wrong, you miss, and now you got two minutes to think what he's going to do next. Uh, but there is no two minutes in a piece of music. It just goes along uninterruptedly. And if the conductor makes a mistake or the orchestra makes a mistake, you've got to adjust so quickly from memory uh, that the audience doesn't notice. Mm. That's, a pretty, that's a pretty complicated thing to do. Now, in the 1990s, uh, the neuroscience people invented something called magnetic resonance imaging, which makes it possible for them now uh, to take pictures of your brain while you're playing the piano without damaging your brain. Well, that's good. <laughs> you don't want it to be done if it's going to damage you, but now uh, MRI doesn't damage your brain or any of the rest of you, and they're finding out... Uh, all kinds of really interesting things about how your brain works and how studying music as a kid uh, develops, uh, as you were suggesting at the beginning, uh, much uh, uh, better cognitive skills. Yeah. Now, there was something in the 80s and 90s called the Mozart effect, which was uh, put forward by a couple of neuroscientists uh, at UC Irvine. That that's, uh, was almost immediately debunked. Uh, and there's nothing particularly about the works of Mozart, uh, which are better developing young kids than, say, the works of Beethoven or Stravinsky. But it's true that the, I, the act of playing or of listening actively and following uh, something does, and that's what Catterall is showing, have a markedly positive effect on the way kids' minds develop. In addition, uh, if my own case is... Uh, of any use to your listeners. Uh, when I was a kid, I was an oboist and I was a pianist, and I was going to a very good private um, preparatory school, uh, which worked the death out of all of the students uh, all day long. So when 
I came home at night, I had dinner for half an hour with my parents, and then I did homework until 10 o'clock, and then I practiced the piano until 11.30. Then I went to bed and got up and did the same thing beginning at 6.30 the next day. There was no time to get into trouble. <laughs> well, there you go. And I have to say that I actually pondered that same question when it came to the Mozart effect. My first question in regards to it when I was talking with someone else about it was, why Mozart? Why not Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, Rachmaninoff, etc., etc., etc.? Right. You know, uh, that you know, and 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 as you've quite uh, uh, well said, that really all of these works and composers and so forth, they provide an incredible uh, array of listening. And I, like I said, my collection of classical music, especially on CD, is just, uh, I'm not saying it's uh, rivaled by anybody. It's not that massive, but it's just I've picked up stuff from here and there and everywhere, and I enjoy listening to it. I find it fascinating, too, uh, Bob, how many artists, musicians, uh, especially those who might win, say, at the Grammys or some of these award ceremonies, and one of the things they might say in their acceptance speech is how they were influenced their 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 uh, first experiences were either uh, in the church or classical music as as we are speaking about it today or parents who were either professional musicians or more likely amateur musicians yeah their parents liked to sing around uh, the christmas tree yeah i was even talking with my parents i i actually interviewed them on this program that interview will not air until after my father and mother's passing, which could be another 20 years or more. But needless to say, I asked them about the importance of music uh, to them, as well as uh, the importance of having music for the family. And we were a totally, uh, we were a family of eight, six kids and, of course, the parents. And uh, they went on for about five, ten minutes about the importance thereof, that it was extremely important, that it was it was part of the fabric of not only who they were, but that they wanted to, um, the word inculcate is not quite what I'm looking for, but they wanted to, uh, uh, share that with us, you know, and, and hopefully we would pick up a love for it. And of course my eldest sister, uh, she played the French horn still does even with asthma, she would play the French horn and uh, my other sister would play the piano. And I took, uh, Let's see, I learned how to play, though I don't play them anymore, the violin, the piano, the accordion, uh, the baritone in high school band. Um, I think I learned how to play the recorder. <laughs> uh, and my father would play the ukulele instead of a guitar, and he also could play the harmonica. Uh, so, you know, it's to have music in one's life, just uh, along with pets, which is one of the conversations you and I had on our last conversation, is, to me, so important. Agreed. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about musical education, uh, because that's where my principal life's focus has been as a director of music schools. Uh, let me give you and your listeners a brief background of how this all started in, um, oh, let's say in box time, which is... Uh, early in the 18th century, uh, at the time America was not even a nation yet. Um, Bach was an orphan, uh, but he learned music the way everybody else in his family did, uh, be 
because they were all musicians. It was the family business. And for a broad uh, part of Thuringia, where these guys all lived, that's what they did. They were all church and town musicians. They didn't think of themselves as world-famous people. They learned how to compose, to play the organ, to conduct, to teach kids. Uh, and that sort of thing went along uh, until uh, one got into the 19th century, where uh, Mendelssohn, uh, in 1820, famously did for the first time at the age of 20, uh, box St. Matthew Passion. Uh, that was the first time that the St. Matthew Passion had been performed since Bach's death 75 years before. So it was a, it was a big event. Um, but during the 19th century, musicians started uh, learning in a serious way how to play instruments. And in every major European city, uh, there grew up to be a conservatory, first in Paris, uh, and then in London, and then in Vienna, and in Italy. Well, in Italy, there had been conservatories earlier. The earliest word conservatory, you know what gets conserved at a conservatory? What's that? Is, is, is the virtue of young women who don't have uh, any interest in going to the convent. If you join a conservatory in Venice during the 16th century, uh, you can essentially sing for a living behind a screen of tourists from England and Germany who come down to listen to these angelic voices. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm afraid that that kind of thing doesn't get conserved in a lot of music schools these days, though we're working on it. Um, mm. But it was one thing to learn how to play an instrument or to sing, and then in the middle of the 19th century, they started in universities studying music history and theory. Uh, those kinds of institutions existed in the United States when I was a kid. Uh, at Harvard and Princeton, where I went to school, you just studied the history and theory of music, and in places like Juilliard and Curtis, you studied how to play the instruments. But in a great many American universities, uh, beginning uh, with Oberlin in 1830 and then with Michigan in about 1885, one began to form what are called now comprehensive American music schools, uh, a place like Michigan or Indiana or Eastman or Texas has a music faculty of maybe 100 or 150, uh, and there are people there who are teaching how to play the oboe or the horn or the viola, uh, as well as the history and theory of music, conducting public school music, anything that has to do with music, jazz in the last 50 years, um, which is America's principal contribution to music. Um, uh, I, when I went to Eastman, in 1972, it was generally imagined uh, that the music historians and the instrument players would mistrust and dislike each other and would talk each other down uh, uh, with their students. Uh, I began by saying in my first speech at the Eastman School that we were going to do that, that we were all going to make an important contribution to the future of the students and uh, music was a big, wide world, and of course we would produce uh, people who won prizes playing the organ or the violin, uh, or to sing, like Renee Fleming, who was one of our graduates, um, on, a, on a very, very high artistic level, uh, but that we would also produce all kinds of other people, of uh, very good composers who won the Pulitzer Prize on many occasions, uh, 
certainly very good conductors, uh, a lot of very good music professors, but people in other fields. I just heard a wonderful concert at Eastman a couple of weeks ago where Leonard Slot can conduct nothing but music by Jeff Beale, an alumnus uh, who is a well-known film composer. Um, in connection with all of that, I began to preach the discipline that musicians need to learn how to think and read and write and communicate with other people and be good at, at technology skills. Uh, that not to have those skills uh, was like being in the 19th century, and we could no longer afford to do that, particularly if a kid uh, goes to a place like Eastman to learn how to play the elbow and then decides that there are all kinds of wonderful other possibilities uh, even within the world of music. I was just reading a paper by uh, a guy named Michael Drapkin from Eastman who got involved in technology, and he's had a professional career in music, but he's made an awful lot more money uh, doing technological startup companies. Uh, and those two things have worked interactively to give him a very active and uh, happy career in music as well. I'd, have to, I'd love to see a study done on... Uh some of these uh, very creative individuals in, in the various uh, technological industries and so forth and see if uh, they have had uh, at least listened to, if not maybe played, uh, these forms of music uh, in their lives that has uh, spurred them in that, uh, in that direction. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. I'm writing a book with Leonard Swatchen right now. Yeah. I grew, I grew up in Boston and Leonard grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, that has a big difference on how each of us originally thought of music, how I thought of music until I met him. In Boston, my father played in the Boston Symphony, and so I grew up in the influence of Harvard and the New England Conservatory and the Boston Conservatory and Huntington Avenue and the Public Library, uh, which put so-called classical music forward as a sort of direct gift from God. Symphony Hall is built as though it were a church, and Brahmins of Boston introduced the idea of not clapping between movements and no gum chewing, uh, wearing only a suit and tie, mm. uh, because that's what the elite leaders of the society did. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, Leonard, who is 10 years younger than I, grew up in an entirely different musical atmosphere. His parents were uh, A1 brilliant string players, his father a violinist and his mother a cellist, uh, and they had together a terrific string quartet, which won Grammys and had an international career. Uh, it was called the Hollywood Quartet, and a lot of people at the time said, well, that's not an appropriate name for a string quartet, but they did it anyway. Where they made their living was that they were movie musicians. His father was concertmaster at 20th Century Fox, and his mother was principal cellist at Warner Brothers. And so Leonard uh, will tell you that as he was growing up, Stravinsky and Schoenberg would come over for dinner uh, with his parents, but so would Frank Sinatra and Doris Day, Nat King Cole, Art Tatum, your cheering. Uh, and so they had a much broader view of what music was about than I was brought up with. I was told when I was an undergraduate at Harvard that Porgy and Bess was in real opera. <laughs> well, I have to say, too, that as a kid growing up, I was introduced to classical music through Warner Brothers and the, yeah. the Bugs Bunny cartoons. They used classical music and opera. 
I, they I did you know, indeed. yeah. Remember, you'll remember Leopold Stokowski and Walt Disney in 1940 doing Fantasia. Fantasia, exactly. So there is, in one sense, there's no excuse for anybody not to have some uh, experience with uh, this genre of music. However, it seems as though, uh, and of course, you travel in these circles more than I do, but it seems from my perspective, uh, uh, whatever it may be, that classical music or this particular genre of music we're discussing today uh, doesn't seem to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it does not seem to be as popular uh, as because of the plethora you talked about the number of musicians coming out of uh, out of the educational institutions and you take a look at youtube and all of the other streaming uh video uh, uh platforms where people are creating music and hoping that the right person will see it and make them a star kind of thing and then you have the television shows uh, america's got talent and the idol and all these others and it's like, you better love what you do because you may not make any money at it. <laughs> but well, then again, you can't live yes, off the love. <laughs> yes, but uh, an important aspect of this, which I've implied, but let me speak about it directly, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that is that young musicians need to learn not only how to play their instruments at a very high level, uh, but need to learn how to think, read, and write, mm-hmm. uh, speak in public, uh, uh, Leonard and I believe, for example, that every young musician should be able to give a two-minute talk, uh, which draws the audience into the piece he's just about to play. Ah. Um, if you and your audience want to listen to Leonard on YouTube, uh, just go to Copeland Appalachian Spring Detroit Symphony, and you'll hear Leonard Slack and give an absolutely wonderful talk about Appalachian Spring which clocks in at just two minutes. You don't want it to be longer than two minutes because pretty soon the audience is saying to itself, come on, stop already and let's hear the music. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's uh, really silly that music schools have not insisted that young musicians learn how to do that. Um, now, the problem with orchestras is that, the <laughs> is that, as you can imagine, they're labor-intensive. Um, if you're dealing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, uh, the Chicago Symphony, you're dealing with 100 musicians and a conductor. Uh, but the problem that they're having right now is that since the middle 1960s, as a result of very generous grants from the Ford Foundation, orchestras went to 52-week seasons, uh, and not even the New York Philharmonic. is There's no market for a 52-week season unless like the Boston Symphony or the L.A. Phil, uh, you have a pop season, Tanglewood or the Hollywood Bowl. Mm. Because for those for those concerts, you can have one rehearsal a week for six concerts instead of four rehearsals a week for three concerts. Mm. I uh, want to remind our listeners, we're talking with Bob Freeman. We're talking about uh, the crisis of classical music in America. And this program, uh, Bob, I, I want to dedicate to a dear friend of mine who actually helped to expand my appreciation of classical music. Uh, he was a percussionist uh, in the Utah Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Maurice Bravanel. And right he brought to my home uh, the, this friend of mine who was the percussionist, uh, Bill Johnson. 
he would bring to my home across the street from his reel-to-reels and vinyl that we would then digitize to the computer, and I'd burn him a CD, of countless numbers of pieces, including uh, a particular event where Maurice was being honored. And we also did a, uh, a series of interviews. I interviewed him about his experiences with the Bravanel uh, in uh, three-minute segments that we did incorporating some of these recordings for a local classical station here in Santa Barbara. And so uh, I, I, w- I am very appreciative of Bill's uh, uh, bringing me uh, those, those works. Uh, he even tried to get uh, the Utah Symphony to allow him to uh, use some, uh, get some of their reels to come bring down to Phoenix for me to transfer and digitize. Uh, but apparently they figured, well, you know what, if he's doing it down there, we can do it up here, which doesn't matter to me because as long as the material is preserved, uh, that's, that's really the most important, uh, the most important aspect, uh, of that endeavor. But it was, it was a wonderful experience to, to sit and string the real tape up on the thing and start playing it and roll it into the computer as well as spin the vinyl and, and what I've been incredible pieces for is being too the way in which musicians are trained and educated yeah change and it has changed yeah uh, uh, and, and has it changed for the better absolutely okay uh, if let's say the New York Philharmonic has a um, hundred players and about a hundred staff members what do the staff members do uh, well fundraising and marketing and PR and Counting, uh, for example, audience development. Those are all skills which the musicians themselves could learn when they're in school. There's nothing so complicated about that. Uh, and so if you had 100 musicians playing a 40-week season uh, and 50 people on full-time staff positions, uh, the, the institution would not have the fiscal problems that it has now. Yeah. Uh, I have a good friend named Joe Robinson, who was principal oboe of the New York Philharmonic for 30 years, uh, who loved to do things other than play the oboe, which he was very good at, and which is what he was there for. Uh, among other things, he produced a wonderful feature-length uh, hour and 45-minute film called Heroes of Conscience about a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian who studied in New York and went back to Germany because of Hitler uh, and took part in the plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944 and paid with his life uh, to the Nazis. Um, That's a a gripping story, and what Robinson did was to put together this film narrated by Bill Moyers uh, and conducted by the conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, Christoph von Dachdani, whose two uncles were also killed in the plot to assassinate Hitler. Hmm. About that, and then there's an orchestra which has been recruited from all over the world to play this concert at Riverside Church, which is very moving. Uh, the way it's all put together with the narration and reminiscences about Bonhoeffer's and Dogdani's. Um, but uh, after doing that kind of project in his spare time for the New York Philharmonic, uh, the orchestra asked him to stop doing that. Wasn't he just satisfied playing the oboe? The answer was, no, he wasn't satisfied just playing the oboe. Naturally, it was a good job, and he made a lot of money doing that, so he did what he was told, but uh, he would have been a lot happier 
uh, if his job description had been uh, a somewhat more varied one. Yeah. And it would also uh, make sense for kids uh, who are now 18, but in 10 years are going to be 28, to have developed ancillary skills like that while they're in school. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, too, another element of, uh, it's not exactly part of the educational process of musicians, but I, I've, I've heard specifically with, with singers, vocalists, uh, this might apply to, to players of other uh, external instruments, if you will. Uh, and that is uh, the lifestyle, uh, the, the food and the drink and uh, getting sufficient rest and so on and so forth uh, in terms of making sure that the physical body is up to a level that it can play and endure through some of these very arduous, some of them can be very arduous pieces, uh, uh, compositions. Uh, for example, uh, when I watched here at the Santa Barbara's, uh, Santa Barbara's, uh, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the theater now for some reason. Anyway, um, they were playing Mahler's Fifth. And one of the violinists said uh, they refer to Mahler's Fifth as the Hurt Locker for the violinists because it's so frenetic in, in the play. So what about that in terms of, aside from the intellectual, if you will, aspects of uh, education for the musicians, what about that physical, uh, uh, sustaining the physical well-being of the musician? That's another uh, issue which is being dealt now with uh, over at the Texas Medical Center. Uh, Eastman School and the University of Rochester are now starting a similar program, and there's one at UCLA, and I would guess in the next five years there will be two or three others in major American cities. Uh, give you an example, uh, playing the oboe is not like playing the flute or the clarinet. When you play the flute or the clarinet or the saxophone, you take a breath and the air goes back through the instrument, and then you take another breath, and the same thing happens. When you're playing an oboe, you take a breath, and you've then got to squeeze uh, a stream of air under very high pressure between those two little blades of grass called an oboe reed uh, until you take your next breath. And at that point, you don't breathe in. You breathe out first to get rid of all the CO2 that you've stirred up. Watch a principal oboe player on stage playing, say, the oboe solo on the Brahms Violin Concerto or the second movement of the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony, and you'll see him get red in the face. Uh, if getting red in the face uh, were all there was to it, that wouldn't be such a problem. Uh, but uh, the 55-year-old principal oboe of the San Francisco Symphony uh, had a fatal stroke on the stage in Davies Hall three years ago playing the Strauss Concerto because of that. Wow. Playing the oboe is what's called doing the Valsalva maneuver, <laughs> which you and your listeners do every day in defecating, but not for more than a minute or two. True. Imagine, wow. imagine doing that for six hours a day for 40 years. Oh, and imagine what that would do to your cardiovascular system. So people, who have, high blood for, pressure, people who have high blood pressure might want to rethink playing the oboe. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they ought to tell our physicians if they have high blood pressure that they're oboists and that they go. need to have that looked after. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you one more story from the Texas Medical Center, uh, and that is from an orthopedic physician who gave, his, uh, gave the board members a talk uh, 
which was entitled Solving the Female Dance Triangle. And naturally, we all went, who, what? <laughs> he had as a teaching aid an equilateral triangle, and at the top of the triangle he wrote uh, Bad Eating Habits for 12-Year-Old Female Dancers. Hmm. Your dance instructor says you've got to be very thin, and so you can only eat lettuce. <laughs> in the bottom left-hand corner, it says, uh, delayed onset of menstruation by two to three years. And in the lower right-hand corner, it says, um, career-ending falls at age 20. Oh, jeez. <laughs> if, if you mess with the body that God has provided you with by eating the wrong things when you're an adolescent, uh, you'll pay for it in the long term. Yeah, it sounds... Sounds that, uh, as I mentioned at the front end of the program, uh, uh, my sister, my eldest sister, who plays the French horn, and she played it through grade school and high school and into college and still plays with the Scottsdale Symphony Orchestra. She's, uh, well, she has to be, she's in her 60s and has asthma uh, and even made first chair a number of times and so forth. Uh, As long as her physician, as long as her GP knows about it. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness! And I give her. Let me make. Let me deal sure, with one other sure. subject before we part. Um, and that is that when I was a child, uh, so-called classical and popular music were on two different planets. But composers in the last fifty years uh, have been writing music which is neither way over to the left nor way over to the right, but somewhere in the middle. Uh, a favorite composer of mine. Uh, just retired with winning multiple Pulitzer Prizes from the faculty of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. His name is William Balcom, B-O-L-C-O-M. Let me uh, have your listeners note three pieces by Balcom, which they can listen to on YouTube. The first is a choral prelude for organ, which is called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. There is a terrific recording of that by David Higgs my organ chair at the Eastman School, try to figure out whether that's a piece of classical music or pop music. Mm. It's both. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. And there are three other pieces uh, uh, recorded by a soprano named Amber Baird called Cabaret Songs. And then there are a whole bunch of pieces by Bill Balcom called Rags. One of my favorite is a virtuoso rag entitled The Serpent's Kiss. Hmm. All three pieces. I don't know what you would call them, but they're three terrific pieces. Before we wrap the program up, I, I want to ask you if I, if you can do a little comparison for us between the music we've been talking about this entire program and some of the other, uh, I guess I would call them musical scales, uh, of other uh, parts of the world, specifically India, they talk about the ragas, and they talk about the the uh, uh, the various half tones and mid tones and all of these different things. Uh, even Middle Eastern music, when you hear the the the, the prayers being chanted from from the speakers uh, during uh, the five times of prayer uh, for the Muslims, uh, it goes up and down, and it's just all over the place. It's and it's a wonderful thing to listen to. But what about those aspects where, as opposed to the music that most people think about, uh, we have eight octaves and we have eight notes in each of those octaves, and we do have the sharps and the flats. And, and, uh, and the octaves are all differently divided sure. in different cultures, right. just as you've been indicating. Mm-hmm. Um, 
mean, an octave is a string which uh, vibrates twice as fast or half as much as another string. Uh, uh, let me use the opportunity that you just brought forward to speak briefly about another project I've been working on. Yes. With a genius from UCLA named Robert Winter. Uh, it is called Music in the Air, or Meta, uh, and it is an online app uh, which teaches not only so-called classical music, but has 300 years of popular music and a whole lot of stuff about non-Western music, which is Bulgarian music and Indonesian music and Chinese music and Tibetan music and so forth. Uh, music in the air is something which not only describes to you, it's not only a wonderful history of music, but it's different from the textbook in the sense that uh, in every sentence there will be a word printed in blue, and if you don't understand what that word means, you click on it, and you'll get a definition. Uh, if you write a pagetura, click on a pagetura, um, uh, a voice comes on and announces a pagetura, and then a drop-down menu will define what an apagetura is, and then your uh, computer will start playing for you different kinds of apagetoras uh, with red lights going on and off, going dissonance, consonance, dissonance, relaxation, tension, uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, How can people... Not only a history of music, but uh, there are about 160 interactive scores uh, so that you can get a listening guide to how the piece which follows goes. Uh, but then uh, you see the score uh, while the piece unfolds together with written comments on the scores that will help you perceive the piece as it rolls along. Mm. And Just this is an a... absolutely stunning idea. Uh, the website that your listeners should go to mm-hmm. for me to, is artsinteractiveinc.com. Artsinteractiveinc.com. I think that would behoove everyone to uh, to get that. Is that something that's just available for the computer, or can you have it on your phone? No, you need it's for your computer. It is for the computer. All right. Wonderful. Well, uh, Bob Freeman, I want to thank you again for giving us so much time and talking about these subjects. And again, there's so much more. A lot of projects you're involved in, but also so much more that we could talk about in this regard. And it's I'm glad to hear, as you mentioned, that uh, uh, teaching uh, uh, the musicians in this country uh, all of the necessary things that they're going to need is improving and getting better and better. And uh, because we need music in our lives. I know I need it in my life uh, just as a list and once in a while I perform here and there. But uh, for the most part, I thank you so much. a wonderful job in teaching kids how to play really well. Yeah. Levels of performance are higher now than they've ever been in the history of music. But we've done a terrible job thus far in teaching people how to listen. And Nita will do a lot towards that goal. Oh, well, I'm going to go there. I've listened to a lot of music over my life, but uh, I, I can always... I'm always open to learning new ways of listening, and I thank you so much for, for sharing with us. We are presently us. adding uh, about a dozen new pieces to me to every year. Wonderful. Well, Bob, okay. th- thank you again. This has been fantastic. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for what you've shared with us, and I look forward no to problem. talking with you again soon. Be well. All right. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until next time, love to lull.